Well, thank you so much, Marty. Marty is one of our elders here at the church. We uh, have an elder team and really grateful for you, Marty, and for all the guys on that team. I do not take that for granted, um, especially as I interact in different church circles. I do not take for granted the health and strength of our lead team, our elders and our deacons, and we're really grateful. Really, I believe as the people were uh, blessed to have the people in leadership like Marty that we have. So thanks for praying for us this morning, Marty. Well, welcome to uh, part three of five in a series that we're calling Bigger. And uh, this is, uh, for me, a fun series to go through because it's always uh, of interest to me to think about what the future might be and what's bigger and better than the present or even certainly than the past. And it's a good time in the new year to start thinking about bigger if you haven't already. Most of you have probably started to rethink some things about your business or your personal habits or your family or whatever related to the new year and transitioning into that. And so as we think about the future and what's bigger and what could be coming, whether it be bigger paycheck, you know, bigger faith, bigger hopes and dreams. Here's what we know, that underneath all those dreams of bigger and what could be in the future and, you know, what might come in the next year or next three years, next six months, whatever it might be, that underneath all those views and visions of bigger are actually some assumptions that are sometimes spoken but often not that drive our view of bigger, that support it and fuel it and often go unsaid. And so here's what we've said in this series so far, that we all have assumptions, and that we all have assumptions about God, about ourselves, others, how we should use our influence, and how we should see future success, among other things. And in this series so far, we've talked about some assumptions we've had about, number one, God. And what I wanted to talk about in week one is that we need to be seeing God as our Father, and went to the Lord's Prayer for that. That God is not just a CEO in the sky or a man upstairs, he's actually like a heavenly dad, like Abba. And what would that mean for us if we began to see God that way? Secondly, the assumptions about ourselves. Last week we stayed in the, uh, the prayer uh, theme and went to David in Psalm 51 and heard about his prayer that he prayed when he was a broken man. And he went before God and said, God, I'm, I'm broken like against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so David's prayer of brokenness changed his legacy from being a legacy of an adulterer and a murderer, which would have landed any of us in prison, to being a legacy of a great man of faith. Why? Because of his brokenness. So we talked about this assumption that we have about ourselves that we need to kind of lay down our authority before God like David did, and that brokenness actually leads to fullness. Now this morning, I want to finish, continue on in this little sentence that I have up here. I want to talk about assumptions we have about others this morning. And in particular, I want to talk about people whom we love the most and we care about the most, people who are closest to us, whether that's your children or your grandchildren or your parents, or certainly most likely if you're like in high school or middle school or younger, probably your brother or sister whom you just absolutely love the most, right? But someone around you whom you would wish the absolute best for. I want to talk about them for a minute. Now here's what we know, that all of us will have people in our lives that we're kind of pulling for and we want the best for, okay? And I was reminded of this uh, reality through the story of a man in India this past week. I read about this, um, this man in India whose name is, okay, I'm going to say it wrong. Uh, apologies to those who can handle this correctly. I cannot. Jalandar Nayak from Odisha in India has spent, check this out, Spent the last two years single-handedly building an eight-kilometer-long road through the Rocky Hills. There's actually five mountains between him and the nearest village where there's a school. And he has carved through three mountains an eight-foot-wide path over the last two years by hand because he wants his three boys 
to get an education that he never got. I'm thinking, man, what have I been doing the last two years? Certainly not carving a, a road through mountains so my kids can go to school. But what do you do for people that you love? Everything you can, right? You may or may not have heard this past week in Australia, there was a young man, 17-year-old Samuel, Samuel Lethbridge. He was driving alone in the Australian bush, did not get home in time. His dad was concerned, and so his dad called the authorities and said, hey, my son is not here, to which the authorities said, all right, no problem, we'll, we'll get on it right now. You go home, wait for the call, we're going to get our people on it. To which he's like, yeah, I don't think so. Like, dads don't go home when sons are missing. And so he went to the airport and he hired the, a helicopter pilot to fly him around looking for his son because he said, I'm not going to sit at home when my son is missing. And he found him before the authorities did. And he had careened off an embankment and had been in his vehicle for 30 hours. And he's recovering now. And he's going to be fine. But what do you do for people whom you love the most? Anything you can to secure a better future for them. Right? That's just in us. That's a part of how we are wired. And this morning, this morning, I want to take a look with you <clears throat> at how it is that we can do more than just hope for a better future for the people that we love the most. For all of us, we have this hope, this desire, this pull that our children, our family, our parents, our siblings, whatever, friends will have a better future. We're pulling for them for that. What is it that we can do besides stand here and hope that they get there without meddling in it so much that we actually get in the way? Is there anything that we can do for the people around us whom we love the most, that we desire deeply for their future to be better. And this morning I want to suggest to you and give to you another prayer because we're staying in five prayers in the series. I want to give to you another prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed. The Apostle Paul was an early follower of Jesus Christ and he prayed this prayer to people whom he loved dearly. And to me it's a game-changing prayer because he gives me something to pray for, for people I love the most, that is as um, profound as it is surprising in how he prays for the people that he cares the most about. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to the small little letter in what we call the New Testament. That's going to be in the right um, two-thirds of your Bible in what we call the New Testament. A little, little letter called Philippians. If you don't uh, own a Bible, by the way, there's a Bible in the pew around you, and that's our gift to you if you don't have one. You can also look this up in the table of contents. You'll see Philippians uh, there in the... Uh, again, in the New Testament. But Philippians chapter 1, small little book or small little letter, technically is what it is, a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. And Paul uh, was actually, at this time, he was in prison uh, in, uh, in Rome. And he had met these people in Philippi throughout his missionary journeys. Like he went around the local region at the time, and more than local, but he went around that area at the time as a missionary. And along the way, he ran into the people in Philippi. And he actually came into trouble in Philippi. He was kicked out of Philippi, and there was physical danger to him in Philippi. And he ended up coming back and reconnecting with the people in Philippi. And they became so close to his heart that while he was sitting in prison, he decided, I guess I'm going to write to the people whom I love the most. Now, I don't know. I've never been in prison, but I guess there's not a lot to do if you're in that moment. So he's writing a letter to them. And look what he says in verse 3, the opening 
section of this letter. Look at verse 3, and we're going to read till verse 8 for now. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all, excuse me, long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you see the picture that Paul has, the the desire in his heart for these folks? He's writing about this, every time I think of you, I think of you with joy. Like when I pray for you, I pray with joy. I remember the partnership that we had, and here I am sitting in prison. Actually, my heart and my mind right now, while I'm here and my mind is free, it goes back to you. You're the people I'm thinking about. And I long for you with an affection because of the work that we shared in. And I want for you a future that's better and bigger. I want for you to continue this partnership in the gospel. There's something I hope for you. You can feel it in Paul. He writes it in this way. So Paul's writing to these people in Philippi. Philippi was an interesting city at the time. It was a, it was a very hip city. Okay, very hip city. It was a, a mixture of Greek and Roman cultures at the time, and it began as a military outpost, and since then it grew into a very um, culturally diverse city. Uh, as Paul ended up writing the whole letter, and we're not going to cover anywhere near the whole letter this morning, he'll end up writing through this letter to the Philippians to several different people, and it gives us a clue as to what's going on in Philippi. He writes to a lady named Lydia in the letter. Lydia, we believe, was a part of what we call the, um, the merchant class, or the upper class in Philippi. We believe she had like a, a villa where the entire church could meet. She was wealthy and had means to host church gatherings in her place. He would also write in there to the Philippian jailer, what we call the Philippian jailer now. The, the jailer was a part of what we call the artisan class or the middle class there in Philippi. These are people who were um, what we would consider in the U.S. right now, your middle class, upper and lower class range. And then he also referred to and wrote about this uh, young girl whom he cast a demon out of, who was a part of the, the slave class, the lower class. And so even in the writing of his letter to the people who he writes to, we see that in Philippi there is a middle class, a lower class, and an upper class of people combined with both Greek and Roman thought coming in. It creates a city that's economically diverse and also socially, culturally, and a little bit religiously diverse. What's interesting in Philippi is especially it was founded upon uh, by an emperor. They founded uh, by an emperor, and there was great emperor worship going on in Philippi. In fact, it was so significant in Philippi that any time you had a public gathering of any kind, you had a public, um, let's say, a play or performance in the theater, or you had a public assembly for political reasons, you always had to, first of all, begin, instead of like we might in North America with the playing of the national anthem, you begin with an address to the emperor. And here's the language that they would use to refer to their emperor, who, by the way, was Nero at the time. And we're going to do a little bit of Greek. If you want to play along this morning, you're welcome to play along. But here we go. Here are the two titles that they would use to refer to Emperor Nero at the time. These are Greek words transliterated into English text for us. The first is kurios. The second is soter. You want to play along and say that? You can if you want. We're going to do that on three. One, two, three. Kurios and soter. Doesn't that feel good? 
you just spoke a little bit of Greek this morning. By the way, those translate into English into this. Lord, Savior. And so here are new Christians in Philippi, in a diverse, hip city, realizing that all of a sudden we have a new Kurios, and we have a new Soter. We have a new Savior. We have a new Lord. And we can no longer stand by our friends and our family and the people who always used to in the assemblies address Nero as the Lord and Savior. And the problem for the young church is that not only are they having this struggle of figuring out how they live in this new reality, many in the church were a part of the same class that that little slave girl was a part of. They were part of the slave class, almost almost all. And so as people who are not Christians in Philippi look at this young fledgling church in Philippi and they see that it's trying to get off the ground. Number one, they're confused because it's new and it's strange. Number two, it seems like all the people who are coming Christians are part of the slave class and who wants to be a part of that if you don't have to? And why is your Kurios and Soter, one who came as a humble servant and was crucified and didn't come in power and strength like our Kurios and Soter, Nero. How are you going to grow, young church, in the middle of all of that? And that is all in Paul's mind as he sits there in the prison in Rome and his heart and his mind goes to these people who he knows by name and he's been in their homes and he wants to write to with an affection and desire for this little church to say, get off the ground, church. Get off the ground like I want this for you with affection. I'm pulling for you to make it in this city that wants to chew you up and spit you out like I'm pulling for you. And so it's very interesting to me what Paul prays for these people. How is it that he frames up the desires of his heart next? And this is where he goes. And it is, like I said in a moment ago, it is as profound as it is surprising what he prays for these young believers in the city of Philippi. And he says it straight out in your text right in front of you in verses 9 to 11. This morning I'm going to put it on the screen, but if you have your Bible, I invite you to look at it right there with me. And he prays this, and he writes this prayer to them. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, this is typical Paul writing. He will often write and include phrases and add thoughts and and all that. And if you stop to think about this prayer for a minute and think, what is Paul actually saying? I'm not going to take you further into Greek than kurios and soter this morning, but I do want you to know in the original language it's very clear that there are two main ideas that Paul is writing about here. There are two thoughts in his mind that he introduces, and we can see them if I highlight them here for you. His first idea is this. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. That's his first point. This is what he desires, first of all, that your love may abound more and more. And his second point comes just a little bit later, so that you may be able to discern what is best. Everything else in that prayer supports or explains those two main ideas. Those are his two main ideas in his writing that he wants for these people, that your love may abound more and more, and so that you may be able to discern what is best. Now, I have two questions about that. One is, what does that mean? 
And number two, how in the world are these two connected to each other? Because they are. And that is the interesting and profound thing. Let's talk first of all about what in the world does that mean, that your love may abound more and more. This is, of all the words in the Greek text for love, there's agape, phileo, and eros. Agape is this unselfish, other-centered love. Phileo is like Philadelphia. Eagles, here we go. Okay, Philadelphia, a city of brotherly love. It's a brotherly love, and eros is an erotic kind of love. This is that agape love um, that Paul writes about, that he wants this agape love for, for, uh, for people to abound more and more. And then he says, in knowledge and depth of insight. This is the same thing that might happen uh, if you look at someone who's been married 50 years and compare them to someone who's been married one year. You could ask the question, who loves stronger? Who loves better? And it would almost be an unfair question because, well, they both do, right? I mean, your newly married loves as deeply as they know how. And they do agape love if they're in a good relationship and right, you know, things are going well. They do have this. But let me ask you, someone who's been married 50 years, do they not have greater knowledge and depth of insight that your one year married simply, simply do not have? Not because they've been doing anything wrong. They just don't have that knowledge and depth of insight yet. Do you not, as you grow in unselfish love, become more aware of what your spouse needs and how to serve them well? And does that maturity not help you love them even more? Does not love drive you to know more and understand more? Love drives that, right? Same for any hobby. If you got into singing, art, music, sports, any hobby that has caught your heart, the more you give to it, the more you understand it. And then the better you become at it, and then the more you love it. And so this agape love fuels both knowledge and depth of insight so that we can actually be smarter and more mature and develop as people further and further. And so this is fairly straightforward. Like we understand that concept that your love may abound more and more. He wants the Philippians' love for others to develop more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Know your neighbors. Understand the culture and the climate in which you're in. That this may grow, that you can love them better. And the second is this, so that you may be able to discern what is best. If some of you have an English Standard Version or a New American Standard or different version of the Bible, it may read so that you can determine what is most excellent. This is a word uh, about weight, the idea of what is best, that of all the things that come before you, all the things that come down the pike for you, Paul's prayer for the Philippians is, like, I pray that you can be better at love, that, you can, that, will, that won't happen, but I also am pulling for you that you will not only be able to distinguish what is good from what is bad, but that you will actually be able to distinguish what is good from what is great. So that you will choose the excellent things, the best things, not just the good things, but the great things. That your response to Nero, your response to the people in power politically, your response to the people who used to allow you into school and no longer do, who used to do business with you and no longer do, that you would have an excellent response. Not just a good response, but an excellent response. And isn't that what we want for all the people whom we love the most? Don't you long for that for your children or grandchildren or for your spouse or for your fiancé? Don't you long for that, for the people you love the most, that their future is not just good, but excellent? Like that you actually figure out the best things for you. And this is Paul's heart for the church in Philippi and for these young believers in Philippi, that they can figure out not only what's good, but actually what is best. So here's the question, then. How in the world do these two ideas connect? This 
is the surprising and profound part. How in the world does my love that grows more and more in knowledge and depth of insight help me make decisions about what is excellent or the best? How is it that those two are connected? That's a strange thing. I will say that I have rarely thought about it in these terms. That, oh, well, maybe if my love gets better, then I'll be able to discern what's most excellent? Like, what is going on with this, Paul? And this is a strange, strange connection on the surface. Um, let me do a little bit of audience participation this morning. I'm going to do a raise of hands moment here for you. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, it's all about who you know? All right. Almost everybody. Now, if you haven't raised your hand, you've now heard about it. So now, we could all raise our hand, right? It's all about who you know. And that often is said in the context of, you ever see this happen? There's a job opening, and the, uh, the boss's daughter is applying, and you are applying. It's all about who you know, right? Like, this is reality. Like, you might have the best credentials on paper for a job in some big city somewhere else, but you know as well as I that if the friend of the boss or the friend of the CEO has a college graduate who's ready for that entry-level spot and you applying from some out-of-state position are actually more qualified, who do you think is going to get on the top of the application list? We know this is the way the world works. It's all about who you know. It's the reality of things. Here's what we know. This world works, not first because of policies, rules, or regulations, but because of people and the relationships that we have with them. This world works not because of rules, regulations, or anything like that, but because of people and the relationships we have with them. Here's what I mean by that. We know that over time, things that had been rules, had been policies, had been regulations, change. Why? Because the interest of the people who have made them changes. So check this out for a minute. Um, behind it, every rule, there's someone who's, who's made it and, and written it. I want you to go back in time for a minute. Um, I don't know if any of us were alive at this time. Boy, this is dangerous. I've gotten myself into one here. 1920. Anyone alive in 1920? Don't raise your hand. Okay. Actually, that'd be pretty impressive by now, 2018. All right. Raise your hand if you can. 1920. 1920, um, in the United States of America, it was illegal now to drink a beer. The 18th Amendment entered, ushered into a period of prohibition. I was going to ask if any remember that, but I don't think we did, except from history books. And then what happened with prohibition? Is that in prohibition, then what came to the surface, what really rose in that point was gang violence and organized crime spiked, because now all of a sudden there's a market, but it has to be done illegally, but there's a tremendous market that wasn't there before. And so about 13 years later, in 1933, Congress changed its mind and introduced the 21st Amendment, in which they said, you're now allowed to do the thing that just a few years ago you were no longer allowed to do. In other words, we're going to change the rules based on the people and the relationships we're having with them. Check this out as well. Slavery legalized in Utah Territory in 1852. After one year of bloodshed in the Civil War, we know this, Congress passed the 13th Amendment in 1865 outlawing slavery. Many of you know this past Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, MLK Day, this past Monday. In 1963, Martin Luther um, spoke to a rally in Washington about civil rights. 
1964, the U.S. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, which outlawed black codes and Jim Crow laws, which essentially made it what had made it, had made it prior, illegal for blacks to vote or for blacks to testify against whites in court. Now, illegal. Change in rules, policies, and regulations. Why? Because the people whom the rule and regulation and policy was meant to serve no longer served them well. Like the rule was out of step with the people. It wasn't appropriate. And so this world isn't governed, first of all, by rules and laws, policies and regulations, nor accomplishments, but first of all governed by people and our relationships to people. And Paul knows this, which is why he writes what he writes Young church in Philippi, your world is not, first of all, governed by Nero and the rules and policies and regulations that are upon you and the persecution that you're getting. Your world is, first of all, made up of people and the relationships you have with them. And so, check this out for a minute. If this is true, then one of the most valuable rules of life we can learn is to love well. If life is primarily about how I relate to people and the relationships I have with them, and life is not governed, first of all, by laws and policies, then it is profoundly important that I learn to love the people around me well with knowledge and depth of insight so that I may mature in my growth and be able to discern with excellence what is the best thing to do for our community for our church, for my family, for my future, for my faith, for my finances, in my marriage, in every aspect of my life. And this is why Paul writes what he writes. He prays for this young church. I want your love to grow in knowledge and depth of insight so that you can discern what is best And then he says, and be pure and blameless. In other words, that your motivations can be pure and right. Look at the text again with me as he finishes up this prayer. May be pure and blameless, verse 10, until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, all to the glory and praise of God. That at the end of the day, young church in Philippi, your future will be known as people who brought glory to God because you loved the people around you well, and as you loved them well and served them, they gave you influence to lead and serve and create a future in their community. And in that, you cared for them, and you made rules, you made policies, you made business decisions relative to the interests and needs of the people because you understood them, not because you were an expert in the law, but you were an expert in people and the relationships and what the people needed You led social change if need be, and you led legal change if need be to change rules that were hurting people, that were unjust, that were leading to trouble and struggle and injustice of all kinds. But that is what Christians do because they understand the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is why Paul prays the way he does. Young church in Philippi, for your future, I would pray that you 
before you become an expert in the law, before you become awesome at whatever you're planning to do, before you revolt, by the way, against your political leaders, before you get so angry at people who are persecuting you, before you react on social media to the things that are offending you personally, before you become one of those people who just reacts, that you would be known as someone whose love abounds in knowledge, depth of insight, so that you can help lead and discern what is best and gain influence for the glory of God. So let me put it this way to you. If you're hoping for a bigger future for those you love the most, let me encourage you to pray that their love may abound so they can choose what's best for God's glory and man's benefit. And this is what Paul prays for this young church in Philippi. And what I want to encourage you to pray for your children, for your grandchildren, for your friends, for your neighbors, for your boss, for your co-workers, or even for yourself. That as Christians, people who claim the name of Jesus, understanding it's no surprise that the greatest commandment is to love God and the second to love our neighbor. That Paul's encouragement and his prayer and his affection is turned toward the people he loves the most. And he'll say, this is what I want for you. That your love, your care, will abound more and more. Because you understand this world is not just about rules, regulations, and policies. It's about people and how we relate to them. And that your influence on them will lead to a world which you're given influence and the opportunity to bring glory to God and the benefit for humanity. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing prayer. And I want to lay out to you, say, pray this for your children. Pray this for your family. Pray this for our church. Pray this for me. Pray this for those whom you love the most. Next week, as we continue our series in Bigger, we're going to look at how we should consider our future influence and how we can look at another prayer that gives us an idea of how we can pray about how we influence our world. We'd love to have you join us for that. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to stop for a moment in this prayer of Paul and see what's on his heart and what's on his mind and how he cares for this young church and desires for these folks to have a future in which their lives are changed because their ability to love is so significant. I pray for us as business leaders, as educational leaders, as social service workers, as people in the nonprofit world, as people in the construction business, as people in all factors and facets of life, as we walk through our week, I pray that you'd help us to love our employees well, meaning we're considerate of the policies that we have. We're considerate of our wage scale. We're considerate of the way in which the culture of our business organization serves the people well. That we don't ever have rules for rules' sake, but we have rules for the benefit of human flourishing, for the benefit of our employees, for the benefit of the clients whom we serve and the people whom we interact with. Give us the courage to love with knowledge and depth of insight, to understand the stories of the people that we interact with 
to care to step into those moments where we can learn more and more about the people whom we have the opportunity to serve. And help us, I pray, help us to be people known for a growing love that is informed and intentional and courageous. That we can make decisions for what's best for those around us, for your glory and for our benefit. We'll pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.